It's time for Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester, America's premier automotive news and information talk show. Ken loves talking all about cars, past, present, and future. Here he is, that automotive nerd with a historical twist, Ken Chester. If you're just tuning in, this is our number two of Roadworthy Drive. I'm your gracious host for the hour, Ken Chester. So glad you are here. For this hour, we're going to discuss the hacking of in-flight commercial aircraft from the ground, uh, the autonomous machinery coming to a garden near you, and then finally, autonomous cars that are actually being handled remotely by humans. All that in our news from the parts bin in a moment, but first, um, normally right here, I would say that the full crew is here, but we're enduring a week without Sasha, and we miss her, and... Is just Jack and I in studio at this time. How are you holding up over there, Jack? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Um, I'll let you pick up that conversation with Sasha next week that uh, you've been meaning to have. With well, her. yeah, because <clears throat> I got a, I got a bone to pick with her. That's, that what I, that's what I understand, but I'm going to ask you to hold on to that bone, and but it's in storage for a week. And we're going to tell listeners what that bone is right now. Okay. Basically, I introduced Sasha to something called a digital license plate. And this week on our social media, I saw that she just went like I was raving all over it, that I that I couldn't get enough of it. What, you about, raving? A, about the same kind of response that she has with canvas. <sighs> and it's like, no. Did I you wasn't. actually bring that up? No, I didn't. But I canvas? Will, but no, I, no, no. But no. I will bring it uh, up. Canvas and digital license plates you two can hold on to for now. And we'll, we'll get those at yeah. another time, I yeah. promise. Yeah, we'll do that at another time. Uh, but speaking of automotive trends, how about some automotive trends that fizzled out? Like what? Um, Built-in child seats. Remember those? No, I don't. But Well, back in the 1990s, it was a thing. The automakers had actually developed a seat that was built into the seat that actually built up for support for, like, toddlers. Not so much babies, but toddlers, where you'd have, like, a booster seat. Mm-hmm. And it were built into the cars. Well, apparently... Um, the need to move kid from car to car kind of put the kibosh on those because they were they didn't come out. You had it for that car, which means if you moved them, you'd still need a seat for the other car. And realistically, do you think the automakers could have afforded to put those in cars today with all of the stringent requirements that are, are supposed to be there for a car seat? I think it's more an issue of convenience than requirement. Okay. I mean, you invest enough capital, you can overcome just about anything. True. And the automakers have proven that they could do that. So I'm, I'm not so concerned about the stringent requirements as I am the, the convenience. Because if it's not convenient, it don't matter. Here's another one for you. Automatic seat belts. I hated those. I hated them, too. Uh, particularly when they jammed, which and, they did a lot. And you couldn't get out of the vehicle? Well, you'd have to extract yourself, but it's not. Oh, yeah. Did not like those. Um, I call those a very short-term solution between just the regular three-point belt, which, I mean, really, how lazy did you have to be to just reach over, grab the three-point belt, and, and buckle it? Really. In 1975 was the first time I ever saw a shoulder harness. 
Ooh, that's a little late for you because no. I had seen him as early as 1968. Nope. 19, 1975, it was in a, in a Chevy station wagon. Mm-hmm. But that was the one that you could fold You could fold that shoulder up on top of the Yeah, they the, were separate. The, the, hood, the, the headliner. Yeah, they were separate. And then you had to combobulate it into the, into the bracket and then fasten it. Mm-hmm. My, well, my dad's 68 Pontiac Bonneville had the separate shoulder belt. And the seat belt. You had two buckles, and you it's separate, but you could put it up there. There was a clip up in the headliner. Correct. To put it back up yep. there. Um, airbags were still a better solution. Yep, they were. And, I, and I'm glad, and more practical. Here's another one. Do you remember the bag phones or the actual phones in the car? Oh, my. Yes. You remember those? Yes, and yes. I had one. I had one. Yeah. Those are something. I don't know. Um, the, the evolving smartphone from brick to something usable. Pretty much replace those. I owned a, I owned a brick mm-hmm. that we ended up dropping three stories. Ooh, we were on a construction job, mm-hmm. and it came off my belt and dropped three stories. Oh my! Didn't have a scratch on it. Uh, I guess that qualifies. Back in the day, they don't make them like they used to. Oh hello! <laughs> Absolutely, you can't say that about everything. Though. Oh no, oh no! If I drop this three stories. <laughs> It's going to be in a lot of pieces. Ah, well, you know, oh, well, that's why you have insurance for those things. Yes, sir, it is. Um, And I almost forgot, for those of you that would like to get involved in the conversation, uh, you can reach me uh, via the Roadworthy Driveline. That number is 872-222-9793. If email is your preferred thing, uh, I could be reached at ken at roadworthydrive.net. Either way, we'll connect you with me in the show. So I I got that out of the way. Um, how about this? There are rules or laws called Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. Right. When a vehicle is manufactured and offered for sale in the United States, mm-hmm. it must meet these standards. And there's a whole, there's a lot of them. Uh, the, the average motor vehicle is probably the most regulated piece of machinery the, an American touches on a daily basis or interacts with. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard 111. This one used to deal with just traditional rearview mirrors. They've changed the language now to ref- to include rearview cameras. Okay, which a lot of cars have them on them. Have right them now. now, but now there are standards for those. There weren't up till now, but there are standards. Uh, the standard is that uh, typically uh, it's going to f- you have to have one on a vehicle that is has a gross vehicle weight rating of 10,000 pounds or less, has to sit 20 inches to 55 inches from the ground, and must be capable of giving an extended view, rear view of the driver in a space 10 by 20 feet behind the vehicle. Okay. This is going to affect a lot of commercial vehicles for the first time. Yep. Because up till now, they didn't have to have that. Well, and my question becomes, if we're going to look at vehicles like that, what do you what do you do with with somebody who orders, or let's just say you're somebody that's got like a dump box, and all you're going to do is order a chassis. But here's the thing. And how do you make sure that all that gets hooked up? Ah, but it's over ten thousand pounds. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Mm, you're talking five tons, and I would say your average dump truck is probably six to eight tons. You know, you know, I have a dump box on my truck. Yeah, you're thirty five hundred. Yeah, my thirty five hundred. Uh huh. And what's that come in way at? Empty. 92. Guess what? 
Well, you're, you're right there. Yeah. So there's some question, but it's also an older one that wouldn't necessarily be required. So well, they'd have well, to address it. Well, no. I mean, if I had to go replace that truck today, mm-hmm. my well, guess is I'm going to get caught with that. Well, I don't know. It would depend on how they're making them today, whether they're making them that heavy, maybe a little heavier. You'd really have to literally check. Well, yeah, you'd have to you, check. Because you're within 800 pounds. So eh, yeah, that could be something. Um, the whole reason for this change uh, was a law called the Cameron uh, Gulberson Kids Transportation Safety Act of 2007, which directed the National Transportation Highway Safety Administration to develop a rulemaking process to expand the required driver view in order to reduce back over accidents. Yeah. So in order to make kids safer, things safer. In fact, some automakers have even gone further that if there's something in the back and you see it and you don't respond, it will automatically stop. Yep. So I guess the rear view cameras were being installed ahead of this standard that they knew were coming, which is typical of most standards. Well, plus you also have sensors back there now on new vehicles. Yeah, you've got you've got. Rear sensors, you've got front sensors, you've got surround view on some vehicles. Yep, <coughs> you've got you've got side sensors too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially especially around probably both back quarter panels. Yeah, and honestly, another step. I mean, as we've always talked about, vehicle autonomy is being built upon uh, existing systems, sensors, cameras, things that are in the vehicle today, creating the backbone what they're building on top of it. They're not recreating the wheel. They're adding to it. Um, Even from, well, look at cruise control. When it started, it was vacuum controlled. Then it went electrical. Then you got to what they call um, adaptive cruise control, which altered your distance. You could set distance of the vehicle in front of you to maintain distance. Now they've got uh, adaptive cruise control with stop and go, which has the ability to even bring the vehicle to a complete stop in certain situations with or without driver intervention. So food for thought there, but it's building. Uh-oh. Extra. Maybe. Something extra. Whoopsie. <laughs> Whoopsie. That was, like, some... that was like the mouse got away from me. Apparently. You need to maintain that mouse, my friend. Yeah, I know. Well, next up, I'm going to have to walk back what I said about unhackable airplanes. You're riding Shotgun with Ken and Roadworthy Drive. This is Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. small car. Here's what AMC did to give you more small car. We made it wider so you get more room. We put in an isolated suspension system for a smooth ride and rack and pinion steering for precise handling. It's got far more visibility, bigger doors, and a wide hatch. This is the AMC Pacer, and it's everything a small car never was. 
A chainsaw, really? An AMC Pacer, really? Well, what could possibly go wrong? Um, I have a list, number one, about the only car of AMC's I ever liked was the Eagle. Well, I like the Concorde, but that I'm a strange duck anyway. Um, I will I will say this: the the ad got one thing right. What no other small car ever was, <laughs> and that's true. Before or since, uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Roadworthy Drive, and I'm Ken Chester, your host. Now, I never thought I would ever have to say this, but Jack, I have to correct some statements I have made over time on this program relating to the safety from hacking of commercial aircraft. Turns out I was wrong. Very wrong. Now, you hardly have to walk anything back. Well, I got to walk this back. Well, <clears throat> with you walking it back, you are now scaring me out of my mind. Well, you should be a little scared because I actually have to take back. Now, bear in mind, here on Roadworthy Drive, like we say, we're a transportation show, so we dabble in a little bit of everything. And because safety and privacy are big issues for us. Um, I had said on this program before um, that commercial aircraft was pretty much hack-proof. I had said that many times. My dad, having been in the airline industry as a master aircraft technician, I mean, that's just not something I've ever heard him have to talk about. And you said what? Um, about hacking. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, until now that they couldn't be are hacked. You, are you saying that they couldn't be hacked? That's what I said. <laughs> Wrong. Yeah. Um, apparently, researcher by the name of Ruben Sinamarta uh, had determined that there were major vulnerabilities, in this case, in satellite equipment that could be used to hijack and disrupt communication links to airplanes, ships, military operations, and industrial facilities. Oh, boy. Now, I thought this was kind of an outlier, so I did a little more research. I'm like, yeah, no, that's the case. Folks would be yelling this from the rooftops. Um, Good and bad news. They weren't yelling it from the rooftops, but I found a lot more stories that went into a lot more detail. Okay. Um, Up till recently, it was a theory of his from what he found, but he was never he never really actually did it till this year. Okay, wait a minute. This gentleman was able to control a satellite to disrupt things. I wouldn't say control. I would say take over or manipulate. Well, that's still just as bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, what's worse, they named the satellite control equipment by manufacturer and model mm-hmm. that was vulnerable. Yep. Ten manufacturers. Only one took him seriously and is making changes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, let me read this. He said in his latest research, he studied sat- other SATCOM systems and infrastructure and found the usual suspects of industrial Internet of Things flaws, backdoors, insecure protocols, and hard-coded credentials, as well as buffer overflows, code injections, and exposed services. Basically, they weren't built with security in mind. How old are some of these satellites? Um, I can't speak to that because it was more not so much the satellite, but the control equipment that allows you to control uh, access to the satellite, which was it uh, in question. Now, I will say this. Apparently, from from my research, and oh, I should also preempt that with this. Homeland Security did the same thing to one of their jets on the ground remotely. 
to see if it could be done. They could do it. Have they fixed it? I believe that they have. Now, there's some. this is where it gets a little squirrely. It gets squirrely because what they said is new aircraft are hardened against anything like this. But they said aircraft that's been flying particularly, and I named some Boeing models, which I'm not going to name. They said 90% of commercial aircraft, 20 years old or older, are probably susceptible because they haven't had the kind of security upgrades that the new aircraft have. Right. So they were talking that. Nowhere did he say or even Homeland Security said that a brand new aircraft was susceptible to hacking. Well, I wouldn't think there would be. Um, but I'm again, not, but, I'm again, but so again sure. I may be wrong. Um, the particular aircraft that they were talking about, Boeing model, had been out of production now for, oh, I believe about 14 years. Okay. But you got to understand the typical lifespan of aircraft could be between 20 and 40 years, depending on how often it's used, how far it flies, uh, refurbished, kind of like the railroad business. I mean, the railroad business is still using engines that were built 60, 70 years ago in some situations, and they're perfectly fine. Uh, aircraft are not quite that old, but the reason why I bring it up, again, it's all a matter of security and privacy in this world of the Internet of Things, we're getting more and more electronic and all sorts of things going on. We need to be more aware, not less aware. Well, not only do we need to be more aware, but, but I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm going to think out loud for a moment, that somebody could sit there on their smartphone and decide to take over the airplane. Um, talk, talk about a new way to hijack. Um, I'm going to read right from this report. Okay. In some cases, an attacker need only send a text message to launch an attack. However, you got to know the systems. If you, I mean, these are not exactly easy systems to go, oh, yeah, any kid can do it. Right. You have to have some sophisticated knowledge. I mean, in fairness, you're going to have to know. But as companies are going more to the Internet, using more off-the-shelf parts, uh, back in the day where these were very uh, specific parts that cost millions of dollars and not easily uh, to be uh, hacked. Not hacked, but uh, replicated. That's okay. the word I want. Um, it was tougher then in some cases. But now as we're moving to more and more commonality, uh, it heightens the risk. The good news is that at least there are people out there looking at this stuff, addressing these issues. So I'm not going to sit here and say that I would be afraid to fly. But by the same token, um, it's just good to be aware. Um I did get an answer to one thing inadvertently in a report here. I had always wondered why they told you to turn off your electrical devices because um, I thought that was some kind of, you know, just the airlines being the airlines. Well, no, I, I always knew it as, as FAA, what they would call FAA interference. Uh, but actually, smartphones and some um, Wi-Fi was actually messing with the control modules of some of the older airplanes. Wow. I did not know that. So now I do. So I guess... Be aware, be careful, uh, would be the thing. And I'm sure that didn't make you feel any better, but it needed to be said. Well, not only did it need to be said, Ken, but, again, this goes back to our whole concern and my whole concern about raising, you know, the safety issues and privacy. Yep. Well, how about an ear cleanser of sorts? Coming up next, your autonomous garden. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is heard exclusively on the Roadworthy Drive radio network. 
You're tuned to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Welcome to the second part of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester. If you have yet to visit the show website, what's your holdup? We have audio clips of past shows, videos of our behind-the-scenes goings-on, and more. Of course, we're on Facebook, but did you know we had a YouTube channel as well? Yep. Better than that, we're also on Google Play and Blueberry Podcasting for those of you who are always mobile. Sasha keeps things fun and interesting in the world of social media during the week between shows. See how she keeps the social in our social media. Now, with all the conversations we've had together about autonomous vehicles, I bet you're assuming that it's mainly one of those newfangled things for big city folk, and that will be years before you see it, right? Hmm, wrong. Let me put it this way. They're coming for your garden. What? Yes. Mm-hmm. They're That's, coming for my garden. They are coming for your garden. Okay. Autonomous weed killers. I'm, oh, we, still, I'm still getting a gun. We, we, what? We, we cover all sorts of things here in Roadworthy Drive. We talk about mobility. A- right now we're talking about autonomous weed killers. Hold, does, it, does it spray chemicals? What does it do? Hold on. Well, it depends. I've got, I've got several I want to talk about. You'd think it was just one, didn't you? Yeah. No. No. Let's start with this one. You've heard of the, the Roomba uh, vacuum, right? Correct, yes. The autonomous vacuum goes around. Yep. They just launched a weed-killing robot named, and I'm not making this up, Turtle. It's spelled T-E-R-T-I-L-L. Just, Somebody was hooked on phonics. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the garden. Yeah, exactly. Um, this one is designed to kill weeds in your garden. They launched this Kickstarter campaign. So what, you know, of course it's going to be successful, right? It's Kickstarter. This turtle, the round 2.5-pound bot, uses sensors to identify weeds in a vegetable or flower garden. Then it uses a spinner string trimmer to cut off weeds near the ground. But it's not using any fancy cameras or artificial intelligence to identify weeds. Instead, uh, the chief technology officer says... It's relying on cheap, uh, capacitive sensors to depe- determine whether the plants have, it's brushed up against are tall or short. And the big problem with weeding is, how do you tell the difference between a weed and a plant you want to keep? This is why I don't garden. Um, so here's, here's what they said. Anything that's short enough to go under the robot is considered a weed. Okay. Anything that's taller is considered a plant. Uh, but they ask questions. What about short plants you didn't want the turtle to whack? Uh, if you can imagine, I, I'm not making this up. The solution is a turtle-resistant collar you can put around the new plants until they've grown tall. Yeah, I got time for that. Not. Oh, of course. For all that, I could have just weeded the garden. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, now, they claim this is a l- relatively low-tech approach and not really sure how it's going to work. Uh, but, oh, yeah, by the way, it's solar-powered. Because everything's better when it's solar powered, right? Well, yes. So it will. So it's supposed to run every day, which is creators will say will keep the weeds from thriving. Now they expect this bot to get smarter over time, but they don't mention whether or not 
whether they're going to use artificial intelligence or not in later models. But they expect, their quote, the bot to get smarter over time. And that as if it's successful, he's going to add more features. Here you go, Jack. This is just for you. One feature they're thinking about is a motion sensor triggered reaction that would cause the bot to move and help scare pests and rodents away. Thank God. There you go. Just what you needed, right? Hey, I will tell you something. Yeah. The last two years in our garden at home, mm-hmm. we have not gotten certain vegetables because the little itty bitty rodents, ground squirrels, mm-hmm. or squinnies as I call them, mm-hmm. rabbits, mm-hmm. are taking my garden away. Okay. $199, Jack, can sign you up right now. They should be shipping already because, it's according to the story, it was scheduled to start shipping in March. Okay. Um, they expect it to cost closer to $300 when it goes into full production. So you might still be able to get a deal. So, it sounds like that that's what you need. But wait a minute. There's more. Okay. This one's from Sweden. And they say, discover our autonomous robot weeder. Uh, a Botics. That's E-C-O-R-O-B-O-T-I-X. They're from Switzerland. Their approach is after an initial a shower of herbicide, it's time for a targeted and precise application. Just the amount that's needed, exactly where it's needed. To answer your question, this one does apply weed killer. Okay. They say with their model, you apply 20 times less herbicide. It works 12 hours a day. It's completely autonomous. Um, another theme here, this one's solar-powered too. Okay, so they're gonna, they're gonna, all this stuff for our garden is going to be solar-powered. It kind of looks that way. Okay. And they think its autonomous robot represents a major innovation in weeding methods. Okay. Now, Ken, getting this back to cars for a moment. Do we have to? Yes, we have to. Are they taking some of this technology that was developed by the automobile manufacturers? I mean, I'm talking about the sensors, the the kind of the programming. but But here's the thing. Not all of this technology is being developed by the car manufacturers. Car manufacturers are employing some of it. But it's really Silicon Valley and the some over 300 companies around the world that are all working to bring autonomous vehicles depending on your platform. So it could be any one of this combination. But like we said on this program before, that back in the day you'd see developments and they were not connected. Right. Today they are because we are so connected as an electrical, uh, autonomous, um, online, internet-based society that – Applications over in one place have implications elsewhere. Okay, Ken, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Is there an app for this? You know, right now I don't see that. But wait a minute. But wait a minute. I've got one more for you. Okay. And let me see if I can find it right quick. Okay. You ready? Yep. This robot kills weeds with lasers. Oh, great. A robot that zaps unwanted organisms with lasers may describe a character in a science fiction plot, but in reality, it's a technological response to farming with high labor costs. Just what you need. It is a battery-powered autonomous crawler built by a pair of German companies, go figure, that is designed to identify weeds and destroy them with laser beams. Okay. I am not making this up. I have a question. You usually do. If what does this do if the laser goes zapping and it hits an animal, i.e., bunny, squinny, squirrel? 
you know, doesn't even say that. But the way this works, I don't think that it, they would be, unless they're, they're eating this plant, which I would expect the machine to scare them away anyway. Okay. Um, they're using learning object recognition software, and they started, you'd never believe the crop they started in, Jack. What? Carrots. <laughs> they have the most hand-weeding hours. And if they figured if it work with carrots, it will work anywhere. And, oh. yes, this thing has self-learning algorithms and all sorts of stuff. This is probably the most um, evolved of the ones we've talked about. Hello, Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Or goodbye, Bugs Bunny. Exactly. <laughs> okay. For the last time, we're going to talk about remote control autonomous cars. This is Roadworthy Drive. Roadworthy Drive is a cornerstone of the Roadworthy Drive radio network. I'm so glad you could join us. This is the last segment for this hour of Roadworthy Drive. And, of course, I'm Ken Chester. Now, we talk a lot about autonomous cars here, also known as self-driving cars on the show. Uh, We've discussed, argued, disagreed, contended, otherwise debated. But we talk about them a lot because they're coming in the near future. It's, It's a thing. It's happening. But I've also been very critical of the current tests. In fact, this is almost rant-worthy, really. I, I've been critical of these tests where the companies that are testing these autonomous vehicles on public roads have a human driver sitting in the vehicle. And you're saying that they can't react fast enough. Well, think about this. Wait a minute. 94% of the deaths that happen right now on a nation's highways and byways are due, are due to human choice or human error. If the computer, which is supposed to be better than the individual, goes haywire, what can that person do at speed? You're talking nanoseconds to make any real impact to affect it. And it takes seconds. It takes two to three seconds to respond as a human being, which means you're already too late. That's my point. That's exactly my point. So if you're in a vehicle... Excuse me. If you're in a vehicle monitoring its navigation, unless you are there because it can't resolve something and it stops, that I can see. (coughs) But if it's not, I mean, if you're rolling 35, 40 miles an hour, that's some serious speed. You don't realize it in reaction time. And if something happens in front of you and the computer doesn't recognize it, you don't have the time. By the time you realize it was something wrong, it's too late. So I lay, I lay that out because of this feature uh, that I saw in the Wall Street Journal that says driverless cars are still handled by humans but from afar. Oh, great. Now we're going to have cars controlled like drones. In a way, that would be a good way to explain it. But what could possibly go wrong? Let, let, me give, let me give you the setup. Some Phoenix area residents have been hailing rides in minivans. That's Waymo. 
mm-hmm. with no drivers and no human safety operators inside riding with them. Okay. But that doesn't mean they're on their own if trouble arises. Now, I need to point out, even though Uber had a problem, Waymo is considered probably the most advanced, safest one of everybody with GM running a close second in terms of – because understand, Waymo has been doing this since they were part of Google and then Alphabet since 2009. Nobody has that kind of length of time, the mileage. Uh, and you forget, Waymo even built one of their little cars they call Flyify for some low-speed evaluations. Mm-hmm. They have the most history of anybody. And this is how they do it. From a command center, employees at Alphabet Inc.'s Waymo driverless car unit monitor the test vehicles on computer screens and are able to wirelessly peer in through the minivan's cameras. If the robot brain maneuvering the vehicle gets confused by a situation, say a car unexpectedly stalls in front of it uh, or closed lanes of traffic, here's the thing, Jack. It will stop the vehicle and ask the command center to verify what it's seen. In other words, its default is to pull over and stop. Okay. Uh, unlike Uber. And we, we talked about this. Now, I also need to say this right here. There is no federal standard for the package of uh, cameras and LIDAR systems that they use for anybody. And this is something that I've asked you before. And it needs to be. When can we get Congress to, I'm sorry, doesn't matter on political affiliation. (laughs) When can we get Congress to do their job? Part of the problem is understanding the technology. And part of the problem is understanding what needs to be done. Because the technology is changing and you have so many players that even though that sounds simple from what I've learned, a lot of times the unintended consequences may actually make things worse. Okay, you're saying that that Waymo is the leader. Yes. Okay. Does Waymo have their own standards yet? Every automaker or every evaluator has standards. The problem is what we don't know as consumers, what we don't know as uh, potential riders is what are those standards and how do they compare to somebody else's technology, say Uber or GM's cruise uh, automation or someone else who's developing standards. They have standards to which they've developed their vehicles. But we don't know um, on this side what those standards are and how they compare. How do we know how to understand or, or understand the development of this technology? That's why you tune into this show every week, because we're the ones that are providing the information to consumers, to adults here in the United States to figure out what's going on. We share the information so you can draw your own conclusions and get an idea either to ask further questions or do your own research. But you can't do it if you don't know. The problem we have right now, these companies are not sharing this information, in part really because it's proprietary. That's why we need a standard. If everyone's operating, like we talked about uh, last show, we talked about Motor Vehicle Safety Standard 111. Mm -hmm. It took 11 years from the law that was passed to the actual uh, implementation of the rule. So we could be looking at another 11 years before any of this, or 20 years even, before any of this is going to get standardized. If ever. 
Now, Congress, Congress can shortcut that and, and, and stipulate, but you need people who know what they're talking about because the flip side of doing that is what if you um, handicap the technology because if the standard is here, then why would I want to go beyond it? Maybe the technology does better than whatever standard you can set. And that is an ongoing challenge that we have right now. Because the technology is moving faster than we can get laws or rules written. Yes. And I don't think you'll ever get in front of it, nor do I think you should. Because you're right now, with so many companies and so many people involved in developing this, that you're finding breakthroughs here and there that are being included. There needs to be some intermediary standards, at least I would say maybe a minimum standard but not to be considered a maximum standard, but it needs to meet at least this. And I've said this before on this show that we need, if the government's going to get involved, we need legislation that will stipulate a standard of performance for all of these self-driving vehicles. In other words, what are they able to do in terms of seeing distance under certain circumstances, things like that. And that is kind of where I end up. We've come to the end of another hour On behalf of the Roadworthy Drive crew, we miss you, Sasha. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in at the same time next week when we do it all again. This has been Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is a copyrighted presentation of the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of the Motor News Media Corporation.